0: The scripture reading for this morning comes from John chapter 4, verses 4 through 30 and verse 39. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. This is God's word.
1: We're taking a brief step away uh, on this holiday weekend uh, from the Sermon on the Mount series because um, actually one of, uh, somebody else was supposed to preach today, and I was told, uh, not so much last minute, but close to last minute, um, that they would not be able to preach today. So uh, I figured I'd take the opportunity to preach from one of my favorite texts, and uh, this text is incredibly nuanced. It's one of the most nuanced texts that I've studied in recent years, and it's at the same time such a... A renewing text. I mean, what part of scripture isn't renewing? But this is such a, it's an, it's an amazing passage about the power of the gospel. And so I want to share that with you today. Um, and it, it's, I guess it's good every once in a while to take a step away from things that we're currently learning because we need to be reminded specifically about these kind of things. It's very important to remember the gospel. And the reason why it's important for us to remember the gospel is because more than any other time in the world, people today are saying that they are spiritually thirsty and they're searching. And this passage is all about that. It's all about water, drinking from the well of life. What the women here in this text wanted to know is this. What is it that can quench my thirst? What is the thing that can quench my thirst? And Jesus answers, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, what he's saying is, you need to know. You need to understand. If you just knew, you would ask him, he says, then you need to know. Then you need to, you need to understand. Because if Jesus' claims, what he's claiming about himself, and, he, and there's amazing things that he claims here, if they are not true, there's not a single part of this book, the Bible, that you should really trust. You should dismiss them altogether. But, if Jesus' claims are true, then everything he says has to be received. You can't just pick and choose if his claims are true. And connecting with him, connecting with Jesus, then, is the key to finding spiritual thirst, or quenching spiritual thirst, finding spiritual reality. So we have to listen to every word. Um, there are three lessons that this text is going to teach us. Um, very simple. Um, pedantic and it basically is what water does it refreshes us it gives us newness and that's what the gospel does the gospel gives us three things a new agenda in life a new life altogether and a new love a new agenda because it gives us a new life because it gives us a new love first the gospel gives us a new agenda in verse 9 the woman says why are you talking to me the disciples in verse 27 come, and they're surprised. They say, why is, she, why is he talking to this woman? And it's, because, <clears throat> and it's because, it's going through adolescence again, And it's because in verse 6, um, Jesus is sitting by a well, and he's talking with a woman. And that's an amazing thing, because in those days, a rabbi, you would never catch a rabbi talking with a woman. Jesus is seated, and the woman is approaching. In those days, rabbis always sat and taught in our educational system today, it's the teachers that are standing, and all the students are seated. But in those days, it was the rabbi who sat, and the disciples would gather around him. And so here is Jesus in rabbi pose, seated, and this woman comes and approaches him. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is discipling a woman. To be a disciple is to literally walk with your discipler. They were called the people of the dust because they came and they walked so close to hear the disciples' words that the dust of the disciples' feet would get on their clothes. And they were dirty. The people who walked with the discipler was always dirty. They were called the people of the dust. This is a woman. Disciples, rabbis never taught women. And she's a Samaritan. And she's alone. You would never catch a rabbi speaking to this woman. But here Jesus is, talking with this person. Back then, water was needed for everything. You need, it, water, you need it, water for everything today. You need it for cooking. You need it for cleaning. You need it for, for bathing. You need it for, for drinking. In those days, women, they always traveled together because to find clean water was a chore. You had to walk long distances for that. It was an arduous journey. This woman's alone. No one traveled with her. They didn't choose to travel with her. She didn't want to travel with them. She deliberately traveled at the hottest time of the day to be alone. Why? She married many men. We find out she married many men. Uh, she was a social outcast. This woman was a moral outcast. She was outside of every circle. She was outside of every racial circle, gender circle, so- social circle, uh, moral circle, religious circle. And Jesus says to this woman, you are in. You are included. Let's be together. The, verse 4, he had to go to Samaria. I came for you. That's Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee, verse 4. It says he had to pass through Samaria, so he's crossing ethnic boundaries. New agenda. Verse 6 to 7, he's sitting down, meaning that he's a rabbi teaching a woman. He's crossing gender boundaries, social boundaries, social mores. Verse 7, it's a Samaritan woman that he's talking to. Samaritans were considered impure, half-bloods. He's crossing cultural boundaries. In verse 9, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's what the woman says. He's crossing religious boundaries. Today wars wars are fought over religion. In verse 18, he says the fact is you have had five husbands. The man who you're with now is not your husband. In other words, she's an adulteress. He's crossing moral boundaries. After Jesus died and resurrected, who does Jesus choose to be the first witness of the resurrection? Was it a consulate, a consul? Was it a governor who were all men? No. Jesus chooses Mary Magdalene. Back then, a woman's testimony wasn't admissible in court. Women had no rights in, the, in those days. A woman's t- Even if a woman witnessed a crime, her testimony was not admissible in court. And, and, and so uh, Jesus should have chosen a consul. He should have chosen a mayor or a governor. No. He chooses. He doesn't choose anybody, not, no, not a single man. He chose a woman. And at that, he chose a moral and social outcast of a woman in Mary Magdalene. And here Jesus is seated, and he's teaching a woman about worship. He's teaching, he's theologizing with this woman about worship. Not a politician, not a religious leader, an outcast woman. Being a Christian, this may shock some people. It definitely shock the disciples. Living water is not based on your merit. It's not based on your record. It's not based on how good you are, how much you've obeyed. Can you believe that? Being a Christian, I grew up believing that being a Christian was all about obedience, was all about how well I obeyed, was all about how good I was. But it's clear here that the woman that Jesus, first of all, she chose a woman and an outcast woman to be his disciple. Being a, This woman, she wasn't praying. She wasn't seeking God. If anything, she was running away from God. And Jesus comes to her and says, you are thirsty. You are searching. What does she say? Does she say, what? Show me, I wanna, how do I get this water? That's not what she says. She just came for water. She says, living water? I just came for running water. That's what I came for. I just, I'm thirsty. There is no intent to meet with God here. And yet a thousand years later, a thousand years from now, most likely nobody is going to be remembered here in this room. There's not a single person in this room. I can put my bet on the fact that not a thousand years from now, not a single person in this room will ever be remembered. But this woman, thousands of years after her life, we're still talking about her. We're still studying her. Why is that? Jesus says there's no ethnic boundary, no cultural boundary, no gender boundary, no social boundary, no religious boundary, no moral boundary. I am not willing to cross for you. There's no single boundary that I'm not willing to cross for your sake. That's a remarkable thing, but only, it's only remarkable if you see yourself on the other side. It's only remarkable if you see yourself on the other side. So the prerequisite to having living water in our lives is to admit that we're thirsty. You just have to say you're thirsty. You just have to know that you've been thirsting and that you're thirsty. The gospel gives us a whole new agenda once that happens. Now, why does the gospel give us a new agenda? It's because the gospel gives us a whole new life. A whole new life. doesn't just make us nicer people. doesn't just make us better people. A lot of us come to church wanting improvement in our lives, but that's not what Jesus is about. Jesus wants to give you a whole new life. I'm going to summarize what's going on here. It's about the sixth hour. The Samaritan woman comes to draw water from a well. And Jesus is drawing her in. Verse 19, verse 9, sorry, uh, the woman says, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. You see, they're starting to build a relationship here because in verse 11, you know, you were a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, that's verse 9. Verse 11, sir... Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Verse 19, I can see you are a prophet. Verse 29, could this be the Christ? So in this one conversation, this woman went from calling Jesus a Jew and saying, we have, about, we have limits here, then saying, you are a, sir, addressing him formally and properly, then, oh, you are a prophet. Now, could this be the person that I've been waiting for all my life? could this be the person that I've been looking for and searching for all my life? The conversation itself seems really choppy, but to Jesus and this woman, the conversation made absolute sense because what Jesus is saying here is, I'm giving you something. I'm offering you something more than just forgiveness. I'm not just giving you forgiveness. I'm not just here to give you a fresh start. I'm here to give you a whole new life. Now, to understand this, we have to understand the context. We don't really live in a climate like that of the Middle East. Uh, We here in this most likely have not seen anybody die of dehydration. Most likely. But the reality is that most of our bodies are made of water. So there's a tremendous need for water. Our bodies constantly are crying out for water. If you don't have enough water in your life, it affects everything in your life. It affects you internally. You literally start to dry up. So you get headaches. You experience pain. There's, there's joint ache. Your body starts to experience a burning inside until if you go even longer without water and you're actually dying of dehydration, your body starts to go into torment. And they say that it's like a fire that's inside, raging inside. Jesus says this, I have something your soul needs more than your body needs water. That's what he's saying. The Bible says this, if God is not at the center of our souls, and you place your life in any other belief, a particular relationship, you know, we don't have idols the way they had idols in the ancient days. In the ancient days, you had idols for every type of desire in your life. If you wanted to have children, you prayed to the God of fertility and you offered offerings. Because if you, it's a give and take relationship, a boss employer relationship. I don't know who the boss is. You give, they give. You obey, the God has to obey. That's the way it worked. If you prayed for a good harvest, you gave tithes and offerings to that God of the harvest. Um, But today we've traded in. We still pray to the God of the harvest by working hard. We still pray to the God of fertility. We resort to all sorts of tactics, and we get totally crushed when we're not able to have children. We pray for relationships. We pray to the God of fertility and love. We just work hard. We sacrifice things, don't we? Just like they used to sacrifice back then. We don't have idols made of wood and iron and stone and gold and silver, but we sacrifice our bodies. We sacrifice our purity for relationships. If God is not the center of our soul, we're going to place our soul into anything else, a specific relationship in our lives, beauty, our looks, wealth, material goodness material richness children and the bible says if you place the heart of the soul into that you're going to be thirsting inherently you're going to start to thirst now your body doesn't really realize it's thirsting until it's too late in many ways they say your body's constantly craving water so when the moment you actually feel thirsty your body's already been thirsting for a while. So you don't realize the corrosion that's taking place in your soul when you've placed your soul in something other than God himself. So if you placed your life, your hopes of a good life, into anything other than Jesus, any other beauty as opposed to his beauty, any other achievement as opposed to his work on the cross, any other merit or record aside from his righteousness, any other wealth as opposed to being found rich in Christ, any other relationship other than the intimacy of walking with Christ, then you will thirst. You will die of thirst. If you place it in anything else, it's like drinking from seawater. Seawater, tempting when you're thirsty, when you have nothing around you to drink. So your body starts to play tricks. Your mind starts to play tricks on you to drink the seawater because it looks so refreshing. And there's so much of it. And you dive in and you drink And it accelerates the dehydration process, doesn't it? That's what happens. It's going to kill you. The thing you think is going to save you will kill you. But if you take of Jesus, we come to Jesus, we think he's going to kill us. We think it's going to constrict our lives. We think it's going to crush our lives. We think it's going to constrain our lives. It's going to destroy our lives. But the thing that you think is going to kill you will actually save you. He says, if you drink of him, verse 14, a spring Of water will well up into eternal life. That's what he says. You're gonna become a spring of life. It's a remarkable statement. You know, you can't stop a spring. Once a spring starts to flow, you can't stop it. You can't damning it up, is the only thing that you can do, right? What's this mean? Listen to this, right? If your hopes are not in Christ, you're gonna place your emotional, psychological, physical well-being into something else. That's what you're gonna do. That is called worship when you put your emotional and physical and spiritual your psychological well-being into anything else you're worshiping that thing you're putting your mind your heart your soul your strength your body into those things that's worship and when you do that you know what happens there's this burden why is there this burden because all of your hopes for purpose is that your job becomes more than a job all of your hopes for intimacy then your friend becomes more than a friend all of your hopes for meaningfulness in life. When you place your soul into a cause or in your family or in your job, when those things fall apart, when there's brokenness there, what happens? You start to thirst. Your life starts to fall apart and you start to thirst. When you pride yourself in, your, in the wealth of your intelligence and that fails you, you start to thirst. Relationships are great. I recommend marriage to anybody. Relationships are great, but they're not going to quench your soul They're not going to they're not meant to quench your soul They're not all you know when you get married. Oh your wife or your husband. They're not always going to be accepting of you You're going to fight you're going to disagree And when you do that you're going to start to thirst you're going to feel alone And if you multiply that by 25 to 30 years in your life you, and You place your hope in a relationship You're going to kill the relationship and that relationship is going to destroy you because your heart has gone bad That's what's going to happen That's why we're always trying to control our circumstances. That's why we play games to get into relationships. And then we play games to get out of relationships. We're always controlling our relationships. We're always manipulating people, fighting with people. That's what we're doing. This woman says, she wants water. Verse 11, she says, where can I get this water? Jesus says, you need to call your husband. Go call your husband and come back. What's he doing? He goes right to the heart. He says, you see, you need this water. You want this water. You're thirsting for this water, but your heart has gone bad. That's why you need this water. That's why you want this water. And he says, I'm going to get to the heart of the thirst. Jesus says, I can give you a lasting love. I'm going to give you a love that lasts. Now, of course, we want to live for love. Nothing wrong with that. We want to live for justice and pursue it. There's nothing wrong with that. We want to pursue fulfillment in our lives. There's nothing wrong with that to some degree. But when it starts to rule you and control you, that's the thirst. That's the beginning of the thirst. Jesus is saying, I can give you a lasting hope. I can give you a living justice. I can give you eternal fulfillment and undying beauty in your life. How do you do it? If you pile into yourself, you're always going to be thirsty. You're always going to be thirsting. You know, those hours that you spend working, either in your job or in your relationship, you know what you're doing? You're piling into yourself. You're trying to feed yourself. You're trying to quench your thirst. That's what you're doing. And when you do that, you're always going to be thirsty. At the end of the day, you're always thirsting. That's why the insecurity never dies, no matter how much love you you believe you're getting. You want more, you need more, you have needs, you have perceived needs and desires. Those things are, are riverbeds that have run dry. They're not meant to do that. Jesus says, a spring, when you pile into Jesus, a spring wells up and flows outside of you. That's why you have a new agenda, because it starts to flow outside of you. You can't contain it. You try to. You, you're you're so flushed with water, it starts to spring out, and you can't contain it. It starts to flow out, and then encourage other people. That's what happens. Relationships stop being about what you get in return, but what you give. No matter what happens, no matter what happens to you, yet my life and my joy will bubble through. That's what, you can't stop a spring. It's just unstoppable. The woman. This woman, she's seeking this everlasting love in her life. Jesus says, Go call your husband and come back. She's seeking an everlasting love. She's pursuing love. She goes to great lengths for this love. Jesus says, Your pursuits have led to greater thirst. Six men, no joy. Five married men, your your life is on a decline. You marry the first person, you think you're gonna get that love of your life. It doesn't work out. You marry the second person, this is the one that's gonna fulfill my life. It doesn't work out. You get the third person, this is the man that's gonna rule, that's gonna just make everything right with my life. Doesn't work out. You marry the fourth person, the fourth person, this is the one I finally found the one. Doesn't work out. You go to the fifth man, this is the person that will finally bring eternal joy in my life. It doesn't work out. The sixth person, she's not even married. She's losing hope. She's lost her joy. What does she even really believe in? What is she even doing? That's what she's asking herself. She's robbed of love. She's thirsting. And yet Jesus says, I have come for you. And you want to know when Jesus is coming for you? This is the key to understanding, well, how do I know that Jesus is coming for me? Here's the key to understanding it. Three things. One, she came alone. A lot of us, were broken, we're alone. She came alone we, we live in a world today Where we feel uncomfortable when we're alone That's why we're always online That's why we're always checking our phones That's why we always have to be doing something with other people We don't even want to ride alone these days To be alone is to feel cursed It makes us insecure It makes us feel like we're disconnected But if, if you think about it This woman, if she wasn't alone She never would have met Jesus She came alone At that hour if you feel isolated because you've, you've messed up in life, when you pile into yourself, what happens is after a while, you end up becoming isolated anyway. This woman, her screw-ups left her alone. And you know, when you're successful, lots of people are always around you. People are around you all the time. You have no time to think about things. You have no time to reflect on things. But when you fail, when you feel fail, oh, you're alone. When life crashes, you're alone. When you're beautiful, when you're young, when you've got money, people are always around you. No time to think, no time to reflect. But when those things crash, you are alone. You are alone. Jesus says, I will use even your screw-ups, whatever it takes, to get you alone with me. So if you're suffering because sometimes you feel alone or you feel lonely, Number one, that's a very godly trait. Even God exists in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's this inherent loneliness that we feel when when we're not in community anyway. But if you're suffering because you're alone, Jesus may be coming for you, okay? The second thing that we know or how we know is that she's inquiring and she's responding. Sometimes we ask questions, but we don't really have a response, where sometimes we respond, we just react But we're really not asking questions Here this woman is asking questions And she's responding to his answers Look at the compassion of Jesus Look at the character of Jesus Look at the patience of Jesus Look at, look at the, uh, the peace and the poise of Jesus In answering, the counsel of Jesus What's he doing? He's teaching her He's leading her, he's talking about worship he doesn't say, oh, this is stuff that's only left for rabbis and you're a woman, I only teach men. That's not what he does. He invites her in. He draws her in. He's counseling her out of his love. He intentionally went out and sought her. How do you know that you're inquiring but and responding? Here's, here's, a, here's an indicator. Things that at one point that weren't important, even like a few months ago, start to become important to you. I'll give you an example. Um... You know, Jesus has you alone. And now you're starting to think about things. So life has crashed. You're alone. And for some reason, there's a thought, maybe I should go to church. Or what does the Bible say? I haven't opened this Bible up in years. What does it say? Or maybe I should ask somebody, you know, what this all means or what I'm going through. You're seeking community. You're asking somebody to pray for you. Or maybe for the first time in your life, in a long time, you start to pray. You're thinking. You know what prayer is? Prayer is asking and responding. When you meet in small groups, what are you doing? You're asking and responding. When you come to worship, our worship is designed in a way where we ask, we confess, we plead, and we respond. In worship, in song, in prayer. We hear, we ask, we respond. That's, that's what worship is So that's what she's doing here Jesus asked her alone And now she's thinking And now she's asking questions So she's alone She's inquiring She's responding The third thing is It becomes personal to her Living water Living water She wanted running water When she got here she's, you know, She doesn't understand This concept of a spring Welling up into her eternal life He says go call your husband She says well I'm not really spiritually thirsty I'm not seeking God I'm physically thirsty. She says, you see, I worship. I worship here. You guys say we need to worship over there. I worship, you see. He says, fine. Call your husband. You're thirsty. You're searching. You're needy. You're so needy. And you're running dry. And you're dying. You think men, you think the love of your spouse is what's going to make you feel good in life. You think the success of, of a family and beautiful children, that's what's going to give you, that's what's going to make you feel a sense of worth in your life, and you're dying, and you're going to be empty, and you've been running empty for a long, long time. You think you're a man in your life or a job in your life, if you, if you have money in your life or significance in your life or influence. Some people, it's not about any of those things. It's just about having influence over people. Or or maybe it's just about something very simple, just having the approval of your friends. It could be something that mundane. But he says, man, you're dying. You're looking for catharsis in these things, satisfaction in these things, and you're going to all the wrong places for it. And it's killing you. You're drinking seawater. You don't need to create faith. That's what we learn from this text. You don't need to create new faith. A lot of times we pray for more faith. You don't need to create more faith. Your soul already has faith somewhere. Jesus is talking about reorienting it. He says, I worship over here. You guys worship over there. He says, no, it's actually here. And there's going to come a time when it's neither here nor there because it's, it's uh, true worship. He talks about true worship. It's neither here nor there. Spirit and truth. That's what he says. You need to reorient your loves You need to reorient your worship. That's what he's talking about. You need a new center. The gospel gives us a whole new life because it gives us a motivational center. Every one of us has a motivational center. We have something that motivates us. The end thing in our lives that is the the motivation of all of our pursuits in life. It's the thing that gives us catharsis in life. This is what we center our lives around. This is why it drives our behavior, drives our actions, drives the type of education we need to have degrees. We need to have this education. I need to have people to look well upon me, to look with me and say, this person has arrived. It gives us a sense of worth. There's a motivational center in our lives that's driving us all the time. And when we're achieving it, we feel good. And we look at all the people and look down and judge them when they're not doing well. And when we fail, oh, it pains us. We suffer. We're hurting. This woman is given a new center. Her life was oriented poorly, and her life is spinning out of orbit. Her life is dying. She's ebbing away. But the next two verses, absolutely remarkable. And it gives us all the assurance we need. Verses 25 to 26. I'm going to read verses 25 to 26 here. The woman said, I know... The Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Remarkable passage. The woman says, I know the Messiah. I've been waiting for this. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. In other words, the woman's saying, you're talking about spiritual reality? You're talking about a real encounter with God? Oh, that's what I want. I've been longing for this. I've been searching for this. My life is so broken. I know my life is broken, but I'm waiting for the Messiah. One day he's going to come. With all the brokenness and all the judgment that I'm receiving, I know that one day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to make my life right. And Jesus responds with three words, uh, two words. He says, I am. I who speak to you and He Translated literally, he says, I am. That's the same phrase when God approached Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush. He says, I want you, I've seen my people miserable. I want you to go to the Pharaoh in Egypt and tell him to let my people go. And Moses says, how am I going to convince my own people that you sent me? When they ask me, who sent you? What do I tell them? God says, you tell them, I am sent you. You tell them, I am sent you. This woman says, I know one day the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to make everything right again. Jesus says, I am. I am. I am God. He says, I am the spiritual reality that you are craving." You know the reason why you're sleeping with all these other men? You're still looking for him. You're looking for the ultimate man. You're looking for the, the him. You're looking for worth. You're thirsting for love. I am. Why does she instantly run back to the town? Up until this point, she's been avoiding these people. She hates these people, and they hate her. Up until this point, she's been avoiding these people, and they've been avoiding her. And yet, she runs right back into the town, to the very people that she's avoided all her life. Why? Because the gospel gives her a new life. The gospel gives her a new life, gives her new freedom, and as a result, gives her a new agenda. The spring of water is gushing outward. You can't stop that spring. This woman, her thirst has been quenched. Verse 28, she leaves her water jar behind. The very reason why she came was to draw physical water. She's found her thirst quenched. That's what happens. She's found a new source of worth. A new life. The cure is love. It's not less than love, but a greater love. We settle for the lesser loves, don't we? We settle for the lesser meaningfulness. We settle for for the lesser significance in our lives. We settle for the lesser sense of worth. This woman has found her true sense of worth, a greater love, and it's available to everyone. It's available to anyone. No matter where you are in life, no matter where you've been in life, I mean, this woman, you know, compared to anybody here, I bet, we'd all look down on her. This woman couldn't match up to even our lives. And yet thousands of years later, we're still talking about her. We're talking about her. What's the clue? Verse 6. The entire, t- the entire passage takes place in the context of a well. How can we be assured that that love that Jesus has for this woman is for us? It's because of the well. In verse 12, she asks, "Are you greater than our father Jacob?" Meaning, "My ancestors, Jacob, formed this well." It's an interesting thing. Why does she reference Jacob? Because in the book of Genesis, If you've ever been in the church You know that Jacob is a very, very big Powerful figure in the Old Testament He's referenced over and over in the Old Testament And in the New Testament And and, and Jacob uh, He was married Where did he meet his wife? Jacob met his wife, Rachel At a well Rachel was beautiful Rachel was ethnically pure Rachel was sexually pure In other words, Rachel was righteous Rachel was acceptable Jacob's father, Jacob is, you know, fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Jacob's father, Isaac, met his wife Rebecca, uh, uh, met his wife Rebecca at a well. And at the well, what he sees is a beautiful woman, ethnically pure, sexually pure. In other words, Rebecca is righteous and acceptable. She's acceptable. Jesus is the greater Jacob. Jesus is the greater Isaac. Why? Because she, he meets this Samaritan woman at a well. But this woman is ethnically impure, sexually impure. In other words, she is unrighteous. She is unacceptable. But Jesus says, You are in. You are acceptable. You are loved. There's a story that I heard that I share here and there about a woman, a prostitute, who happened to stumble into a pastor's convention, I believe in either Las Vegas or in Atlantic City. She stumbles into this pastor's convention, sits down in the back, and listens to preaching after preaching through the weekend. And at the end of the weekend, they put up an open mic because an open mic means anybody can come up and share what they've learned, share their testimony, how they've grown. This woman, at the horror of the pastors, slowly walks down the aisle, approaches the mic. Now, you know, if you've ever been to any type of convention where they have an open mic And you happen to know certain people that you hope, I just really hope that this person does not come to the mic and they come up and they start to share. You know that, oh, you start to cringe at some of the things that they're saying. We're kind of primed for that sometimes. This woman, prostitute, she's not a pastor. She comes up to the mic and she starts to speak, and everyone's bracing themselves. And she says, Last night I had a dream. And in this dream, I saw Jesus. And the pastors are cringing. They're bracing themselves. And she says, I had a dream. And Jesus was in the dream, and I was dressed in white. And uh, Jesus comes to me and asks me to dance. And so I start to dance with Jesus. And all the pastors and everybody else, they're watching me in this dream. And they're mocking me in this dream. But Jesus is dancing with me. And as he dances with me, he leans into my ear and he whispers to me, You're beautiful. I'm crazy about you. That's love. This woman, through Jesus, the unacceptable has become acceptable. The unrighteous has become declared righteous. She has living water. The I am has told a nothing that you are something. You have worth. That's the worth. That's the worth we're looking for. That's why we work hard at everything in our lives. Because we're looking and we're pursuing and we run dry. But Jesus says, You are worthy. She's accepted. She's known. He had to go there, it says in verse 4. That's why He's the greater Jacob. That's why He's the greater Isaac. She says, You're a prophet. She starts to talk theology. Where do we worship? Where do we worship? Jesus says, doesn't say jesus doesn't say you don't need a temple he doesn't say you don't need to worship he says the hour has come the hour is coming and now has come in other words you need a temple the temple was a place of worship the temple was the highest place usually in a city where you offered sacrifices and tithes for worship it's the closest point on earth where you can go and access god jesus doesn't say you don't need a temple this passage is all about it's nuanced it's all about the temple. In fact, it's a teaching based on what he does in the temple just a couple chapters earlier Jesus says I am the temple That's why we don't see temples anymore That's why churches don't have temples That's why Christians don't go to uh, to temples to worship Jesus says I am the temple It's where the sacrifices are made It's where you find access to God How do you know? How do you know that we can come to Christ as our temple? And with the temple, we have a new center. And with the center, we have a new life. What's the hour? What's the hour that Jesus is talking about? The hour is coming and has now come. Jesus, later in the book of John, says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, lifted up. The Son of Man is now going to be raised as in a temple where the sacrifice will be made, the hour that he's talking about, the hour of his glory, the hour where he'll be lifted up will be on the cross, on a mountain, the highest peak, where he will be glorified and lifted up and consumed as a sacrifice to God. On the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. Not just a physical thirst, but at that moment in time, what he's saying is, what he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying here is that I'm alone. I'm asking questions. I'm responding. I want to be personal with God. And I'm burning up. I'm in torment. My soul is drying up because that which was personal to me has left me. My God has forsaken me. My soul longs for God. Where and when can I go and meet with God? People around me are saying to me all day long, where is your God? He says, where is God? I can't find him. My soul longs for God, but he is gone. I have no temple. I have no access. My heart, my body, my soul, my strength is longing for God, but he's gone. Why? Jesus was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Jesus was abandoned so that we could be loved. Jesus was disowned so that we could be owned. Jesus was rejected so that we could be adopted. Jesus was alone. We always feel like when we're alone, we're cursed. Jesus became the curse so that we would never be alone, always have the presence of God in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 The gospel in a verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus, every form of love to the greatest degree, he scaled the heights of Calvary and descended the depths of hell for you. He had to do it for you. He he was glad to do it. Do you know that? Isaiah chapter 53 said he was satisfied. At the work it was like a piece of art he did it and when he was done he said it is finished meaning I did it and I did it well and it says my soul is satisfied your job will never do that for you your titles and your wealth will never work for you that way you will work for your titles you will work for your jobs you will work for your relationships you will work for your children, but they will never do for you what only Christ can do to heal you. No matter how much, and you know why? It's because all those things are broken. All those things are broken too. So You're pouring into it, and they're empty. It's just pouring out. They will never be able to do for you what Jesus did for you because he was filled and emptied himself for you. You need a perfect lover who is going to transact for you That's salvation. Do you believe that? Only then can you break free of the idols in your hearts. A new center. If it can happen to this woman, it can definitely happen to us. If it can heal this woman, it can heal us. If it can redeem this woman, it can redeem us all the more. Do you believe that? Now, If you try to believe it, if you're saying, oh, daddy, I'm trying to believe, you don't believe. You don't really believe. But if you can't help but to believe, now is the time. Be alone. Think about the gospel. Inquire of God. Respond to God. We're going to sing a song right after this. Respond to God. Make him personal. He desires, his presence is here walking with you conclude about who jesus is the i am who became broken for you I'm going to close with this one uh thing that a preacher a um, long time ago i think when i was in high school once said i think i was in college or high school a preacher once said oh in heaven there are going to be many many strange things uh he's alluding to the fact that one day there's going to be like a museum in heaven with all the relics and artifacts of all the things that brought us to christ Oh, there's going to be a widow's penny. There's going to be an alabaster jar. There's going to be a cup of cold water. What will be yours? Let's pray.